we did this interview and it was like not going well. And then out of nowhere, the guy just like shows up with what we wanted. Like he didn't, we didn't ask the right question. He just volunteered it. Yeah, we both, both like, like our voices right. both drop like everybody. Everybody leave the room. We need to get like, to the bottom of this. So we go to this next interview based on this first thing. It's even better than we had anticipated. Like it's amazing. It's like the dream. I'm like, I just can't believe how lucky we are. Oh my god. Like we lucked into this thing. And Robert's like, we're not lucky, we're just good. I'm Jessica Abel, and we're going Out on the Wire, the show about making stories, step by step. We've been preparing and preparing for weeks, months, but this time we're going to start actually making things. Finally, you're going to get a whole set of tools and ideas for conducting really amazing interviews, which involves research and prep, I'm afraid. Still with the preparation. Oh, Jessica, will it never end? One day. And we've got an interview with master interviewer Larissa McFarker, New Yorker staff writer and author of the new book, Strangers Drowning, grappling with impossible idealism, drastic choices, and the overpowering urge to help. This is episode five. You're not lucky. You're just good. Promenade and don't you fall. Promenade around the hall. Lucky strike is first again. First again with tobacco men. Promenade straight down the pike. It's time right now for a lucky strike. Chapter one. Inspiration comes to those who make space for it. Being a journalist is about harnessing luck and having a relationship to luck and understanding how you handle luck. When stories are memorable, when they're great, it's because you harnessed your skills, and then you got lucky. You got an amazing quote. You found an amazing interviewee. You found an amazing story idea that nobody else had. Your job is to harness luck as your product, as your industrial product. That's Ira Glass giving the commencement speech to the 2012 graduating class at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. We're not all journalists, but anyone telling stories can understand this idea. You prepare and prepare. You dive in deep and then something clicks and it's like a little bit of magic and you find that thing that makes for an unforgettable scene or turn or feeling. That thing can be a real thing in the world that you discover or it can be an idea that comes to you because you have all the pieces so well imagined that you almost feel literally like you're there with the characters. This is what fiction writers mean when they say that they can hear their characters talk back to them. It's because they've researched and written them so deeply that they know in their bones how a character would act when confronted with a dilemma. Zoe Chase and Robert Smith have this experience regularly. We heard them at the top of the show. When I recorded the interview, they were both at Planet Money, and they had gone to Italy to report a story about productivity. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Zoe Chase. Basically, there's a huge documented difference between the more productive north and the less productive south of Italy. Zoe found out the Barilla pasta, that dried pasta in the blue box, has a plant in both northern and in southern Italy. And they told the story in Planet Money, episode 400, what two pasta factories tell us about the Italian economy. We set ourselves up to win because either the southern plant has a lot of problems and it fulfills what, what we think about in terms of Italy, in which case it's a great 
it's a great story because you're talking about how do you deal with these two identical plants that have these different kinds of workers in them. Mm -hmm. So that's a good story. Or there's no difference between the plants. And now you have a good story about how a plant faces something that's obviously scientifically determined to be a problem. We have the studies for this. And they've overcome that. So I, I sort of see it like chess. You set yourself up to win. By projecting out possible story arcs, Robert and Zoe saw how different truths would play out, and they were poised to take advantage of whatever came their way. And then they discovered a better truth than they could have hoped for. In Italy, when you are on sick leave, the state can send some uh, state doctor to check on you to your house to see if you are really sick. This is a job? It's called fiscal doctor. Robert makes it sound so easy. But often it's hard to understand how these ideas even apply in a given project. Already in the Out on the Wire working group, we've been developing everything from science presentations to podcast interview series to cabaret acts, and they don't all fit neatly into the story tools that I've given you so far. And here we really diverge, because sometimes your stories will be about real, live people, and the story materials are themselves interviews, such as in this very podcast. And sometimes your stories will be about people who are long gone or who never existed in the first place. And you'll base most of your research on things you read or watch, and that material may or may not appear directly in the story. And I am not a research expert. I'm not going to be able to give you a reporter's handbook full of tools here. I can give you one basic guiding principle. Pay attention to your attention. Let's talk Trish Trash for an example. As I told you in episode one, when I came up with a concept for my book, Trish Trash, Roller Girl of Mars, it was nothing more than a funny juxtaposition of a roller derby player in space. But as I started turning it around and thinking about it, ideas started glomming onto it. First of all, there's actual real Mars. I did a lot of reading about Mars and proposals for how it might be terraformed and colonized. I mean, I just started with Wikipedia and found the National Space Society and the Mars Society out there pushing humans towards space. And then SpaceX and Mars One came along. And that's not science fiction, but it is projecting forward to tech that doesn't exist yet, which is extremely helpful. I read someone else deeply inspired by the actual science of Mars colonization. All three giant volumes of Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars trilogy. Highlighter in hand. But can you imagine what would happen on Mars if the Earth people came up? First thing you know, they'd have us chewing gum, reading comic magazines. Our airwaves would be full of soap operas, bebop music. No. So you see, we must stop the possibility of an invasion from Earth by rocket. Then, roller derby. I started going to actual live roller derby bouts and learning the rules. Gotham Girls! I bought and studied a DVD set of the reality TV show Roller Girls about the Austin, Texas Banked Track League TXRD. I watched a 1970s documentary about the sport as it was then. I interviewed players. That's like two hours, two-hour practices. But that's just our practices. My initial drawing had included native Martians as well. And there's no obvious way to research something that does not exist. But listen, I was trying to figure out how the indigenous Martians could be virtually unknown 200 years after humans arrive on Mars. So what if you can't see them because they live entirely underground? And that led me to leafcutter ants and their incredible nests with miles of tunnels and sophisticated air exchange systems, food growing areas, cemeteries, and more. And that led me to conceive of an entire race living in systems of caverns underground, 
in an insect-like caste system, but with human-level intelligence. This is an anthill. In fact, it's an ant city and a good-sized one. It has uh, main avenues and side streets and uh, stores of different kinds. As I get deeper into the story, I found myself reading up on genetic engineering of algae, learning how scorpions who live in the Sahara collect water, watching videos of lobsters molting, learning about carbon fibers and space elevators, staying up all night to watch the landing of the Curiosity, buying derby roller skates, changing my desktop wallpaper to Mars, and finding curse words in Hindi. And I used all that research to help me build my world and my narrative arc, as we talked about in episodes two and four. The other day, as I was racing through a draft of the third chapter of Trish, I found myself thinking about this. You don't sit around waiting for inspiration. You build structure, and having structure in place creates the space for inspiration to occur. I was working on a scene where the characters are traveling in the Martian outback, and they're going to be in trouble if they don't find shelter. They're in this cave that's used by the native Martians when they're traveling. The entrance to it is kind of a hole in the ground, and then I was thinking, well, it's going to be really dark in there then. They can't see anything. And then um, I thought, oh, I know, phosphorescent algae. And her touch turns on the cave so that it's glowing. The whole cave is glowing with phosphorescent algae that lines the walls. And that idea would never have come to me so easily, so joyfully, without having the story structure in place. Being a good researcher requires being a bit of a bulldog, or maybe a bloodhound, chasing down leads, and always asking questions. If this is true, how did it happen? How could I find out? Who might know? Can I just go and ask her? Yes, by the way. Yes, you can. Research starts before you even settle on an idea. Remember Stephanie Fu of This American Life talking about how she prepared for her trip to Texas? I would um, do a ton of research. I'd read all the local newspapers and I'd read them, you know, not just the recent local news. I'd read them pretty far back. I'd email local bloggers and personalities to ask them if there were people, interesting people that I should know, that I should talk to. I'd call all of the comedy clubs and I'd ask if anybody there specialized in long-form storytelling. Once she got hold of an idea that looked promising, she didn't wait until she saw the whites of those Texans' eyes to follow up. She knew what she was looking for and figured out what the story was going to be long before that. Stephanie knows how to manufacture luck on an industrial scale. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I feel like, I feel like you need to imagine the story in your head uh, to a degree that, that I think beginners don't understand. Like, you want to think through what is the dream version of this story? Like, what's the dream quote that you would want for the ending? Like, what's the dream quote you want from the beginning? So, say you read an article about Colorado Springs. They're hurting in the Great Recession, and they need to raise more tax income to keep the lights on. Literally. We were just outside playing basketball, and then all of a sudden we were like, hey, why isn't the street light on? You know, and the girls were like, what's going on with the street light? But to hyper-conservative community members, this is anathema. So they elect a new mayor and they give him CEO-like powers, not to save city services, but to dismantle them. And they do. They dissolve every city department they can and rehire those services from private contractors. Sounds like a story, right? Let's let's not have a park service where we're paying union employees to clean up the parks. Let's like fire those people and we just hire some company and they'll they'll deal with the employees and we'll save some money. And we'll do that for every department. In, in in our city of Colorado Springs. 
Ira worked with Robert Smith on that very topic for Do You Want a Wake-Up Call on This American Life, episode 459. What if Colorado Springs did run more like the Broadmoor Hotel? Think about it, Bartlett Muses. You get to work, read everything you can, send interview requests to people you know are involved in the experiment. Meanwhile, you brainstorm. How can you best tell this story? Chronological, right? It's almost always chronological. So you've got a before, a during, and an after. And I was like, okay, so if I could describe the dream scenario on where we go in the last third of this story, because the first two thirds are going to explain how they got to this point and they come in and how it's going. So, so now let's go to the last third and let's just describe in the last third of this. So, so how's it work? You know, how do we feel about this? Like, let's see it in action. But how can you illustrate the difference between the before and the after? Because you can just say, here's what it was like before and here's what it's like after. But if you want us to really understand what it feels like, you need us to walk in the shoes of someone who's been through it. Somewhere, there's a guy, and he used to mow the lawns for the parks department. And then they got rid of the parks department. And then some private guy came in, he had to hire up. And what you want to do is you want to get the old guy who mowed the lawns and the new guy who mowed the lawns. And you want to sit them, you know, you want to do interviews with each of them and how much do they get paid? What are their hours? What are their benefits? How's the job? How do they treat you? How do you feel about things? And in the dream version of it, it's the same guy. And the reporter and the producer were out there. I got a call and it's like, he exists. We got him. He's in the story. Like, like we made him up and then he existed. That's right. Private Roland replaced public Roland. The same thing I was doing for the city. Exactly the same thing. Equipment operator. I was mowing. How weird is that? You're, you're yeah, back doing the same job. You know, Here's the point. If Ira and Robert had not researched the story and thought the story all the way through from the beginning to the end before anybody even set foot on an airplane, they might not have imagined that this guy might exist. And not having the idea would mean not looking for him when you get there. Things can get crazy when you're interviewing. You've got to have a roadmap. And I feel like I feel like that's what people, if you want to make things that are really special, like you want to, you basically you want to be a good enough fiction writer, and then hope that reality conforms to it. And then when it doesn't, obviously you do what's what's actually real. Chapter two, questions. So many questions. Like, it feels like a very advanced level radio reporting technique to be able to design the tape that you want before you've done the interviews. Mm -hmm. You know, the stage before that is like just being able to write really well with the tape that you do have. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing that you begin to be able to do is like, you know, write the tape (laughs) also. Writing the tape? Isn't that completely unjournalistic? I mean, if you're writing the tape, how can that possibly reflect the actual truth on the ground? I probably write more than 50% of the story in my head. And I change it as I go along. It's more of a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I talk about this in trainings, and people always raise their hands, and they're just like, well, you know, you you shouldn't make these judgments about a story before you go out. You should just be a fly on the wall, and you should just experience life, and da-da-da-da-da, which will lead you to hours and hours of tape and frustration. And I would say, like, no, I mean, after you've done it enough times, you get so tired of getting back to the studio and suddenly having this thought, like, oh, my God, I should open with this with a person saying this. And you listen back to the tape, and you realize you asked her all these questions for the end of a story. Like, so, 
you know, what do you what do you make of this or what do you make of that? Mm -hmm. And he realized that at the beginning of the story, you don't know any of those things yet. It's it, the the number of interviews I used to throw away because I didn't think. Who is this person? Are they an opener? Do I ask them the dumbest questions in the world in order to get them as an opener? Mm -hmm. Or are they an ender? Are they someone who you ask deep, reflective questions about what it all means? Thinking through your story arc and where a given interview fits in that arc will help you understand what questions you want to ask and thus what kind of answers you're likely to get. That's writing the tape. It's not handing your interview subject a script. And here's another tool to help you hone in on what you need to get the pre-interview. First of all, what's a pre-interview? It's when you get on the phone and ask your potential subjects a few questions to lay groundwork and to figure out if they can talk well. Are they interesting and emotional? And yes, you really have to get on the phone. You can't tell if someone can talk from an email. It's key that you ask only groundwork questions. The point is to determine what you want to focus on in the actual interview without asking any of the actual interview questions, thereby wasting the spontaneity and emotional energy that'll come out when you do ask on tape. It's a tricky balance. You just want to try to figure out what you think the story arc is so that you can imagine what tape you want from the person. You do that by asking just a few general questions like, what do you do? When did you start? When did that happen? When did it end? You're only trying to get a fix on the turning points in the story so that you can come up with your questions and then hang up the phone before you screw it up. You can literally say, hang on, wait, don't answer that question. Wait till we have this on tape. So get facts. Where and when did this event begin? What are the major stages? Where did it end? And then hang up. And no, you don't have to do a pre-interview, but then you've got to figure out the story's turning points from research, like articles written about the person, or maybe the subject has a blog. You get the big turning points mapped out. You know most of the stories you want the person to tell you. And now you need to figure out what you want to actually ask. If you've got collaborators, such as in the working group, this is where you go to them and you hash it out. What are the key questions going to be? What's interesting about this character or story? There are a lot of basic interview questions that are likely to be useful in any situation. When I talked to Jenna Weiss-Berman, she was a student of Rob Rosenthal, he of the Focus Sentence, at the Transom Workshop. Rob has sort of taught us certain questions that you can use in almost like every interview that really get good responses. Like they get people to tell stories. Like, like do you dream about it, <laughs> about what you do? Um, when did you start doing this? What does your family think? Um, what's your typical day like? It's kind of a good one. Ask questions in sets of two to elicit complete sentences. Can you tell me your name and what you do? What would your life be like without this thing that you do? That's a way to get people to explain why this thing you're talking about is so important to them. Rob has always tells us that we should ask people to explain things simply. If you don't understand, your audience isn't likely to. And you owe it to them to ask how something works and not settle for half answers. Display your ignorance. Ask for help. You are not the expert in whatever it is. She is. How would you describe ultimate fighting if you were talking to an eight-year-old, you know? Like somebody who knows nothing about it. That especially works well for non-narrated pieces. Jenna was in the midst of work on a story called Knockout about an ultimate fighter named Kayleen Medeiros. But my switch clicks, like, pretty bad when I jump inside the cage. 
because I'm gonna hurt you. I don't care who you are, I'm gonna hurt you. I had this girl describe like what all the gym equipment looked like because it's they custom design it at this place. Some of the machines look like torture devices with thick, heavy nautical chains hanging from the weights. If there's a physical thing or place involved in the story, you want to have the interviewee walk you around narrating events. You want to have them pull out the picture album and tell you about the photos. Or else you end up doing, you end up having to do it about everything. Listen for moments where interviewees' emotion becomes more visible. Because those are places you're going to want to really get into. Yes, even if it makes you and them very uncomfortable. Maybe especially then. I always like like stuff about feelings. <laughs> like, what does it feel like to punch somebody? What does it feel like to get punched in the face? <laughs> These are this is very specific to my story. <laughs> I don't ask everyone what it feels like to get punched in the face. <laughs> and when you're asking emotional questions or any questions really, remember to shut up. Let silences ride for as long as they need to. Get used to being uncomfortable. You may get your best tape as a result of allowing people to go deep and really think. And when you finish making notes, you've got a list of story questions around a series of story arc phases and turning points, and you've got a list of feeling questions. You need both. Speaking of feeling questions, if you're going to be saying something in your story that your interviewee won't like, you say it to their face. It's hard. Yes, it's very hard. But you owe it to them to let them hear it first from you. And, bonus you may very well get some extremely emotional tape out of it. Group your questions by the major turning points or stories you want to elicit, and try not to make them too detailed where you'll feel like you're reading your homework to the person. Getting too married to your specific questions can be a problem, too, if you end up paying more attention to your plan than to how the interview is actually happening in front of you. Unexpected, awesome things can happen now that you've got a map, and you want to be ready to chase them down rather than pedantically running through your list. And once you've got all this done, when you look at your list of questions, are you excited to hear the answers? That's a good sign. I can hear you. You're saying, oh my God, do I have to do all this? No, you don't. I often don't. But then you're relying on blind fortune smiling on you. If you prepare, you manufacture your own luck. Don't be lucky, be good. It's a bit of a balancing act. I'm actually freaking myself out here a little bit since I'm writing the script the day before I interview Larissa McFarker. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't even know what the roadmap looks like. How can I tell you guys to do all this stuff? And I can't even do it. But in fact, if I slow down and think about it, I do know what I need from her. We're talking about her new book in terms of interviewing. It's a book about extraordinary people who take doing good to the point of do-goodering. And it's got essay chapters where Larissa brings in her own thoughts and her research on the various ways people undermine altruism. So I've got to ask her about how this idea came to her, where she started, and who she first interviewed. How does she typically approach interviews and research? How does she interview when she started her career? How's it different now? How did these interviews shape the book as she went? And did they shape her? Maybe you won't hear all these questions in the final product, but these are questions I have to ask in order to get the tape that I need. Chapter 3. Who's the boss? Okay, so you've done your due diligence, you've researched, you've planned, you know where your interview is headed. You're at the doorstep of the interviewee's house and you ring the doorbell and suddenly you realize 
you're terrified. What do you do? How do you act? Hey there, relax. Don't worry. You're a pro. You're in control. It's totally normal to be nervous, but your interviewee will take his cues from you. So pretend you know what you're doing. That will make him feel taken care of. And that's how he will relax enough to talk to you in an open and unguarded way. You model the behavior you want to see from your interviewee. I have a theory. And the theory is that people, people, they, it's an unfamiliar situation to be interviewed. And so they're subconsciously looking for cues of how to act. And if you go in and you have a list of questions and you say, I'm from National Public Radio and I have these very important questions, they will look back at you and say, oh, yes, well, I have a very important answer. And a lot of the sound of NPR right now is because of that dynamic. I want tape that is story tape, that is funny tape, that is emotional tape. And I believe in order to get that, you have to, you have to act that way in front of somebody. It's not just with funny, it's also, you just decide what someone's role is in a story. So if you call up a professor and you want them to have a grand theory, then I will try out theories on them. I'll say, well, you know, isn't Europe like an onion, you know? And once you peel off the big economies and get to the little economies, and they'll be like, no, no, that's, no, that's right. I'll be, yeah, but you know, isn't it more like a cruise ship where everyone's trapped on the ocean together? <laughs> And they'll say no. Do you make these up ahead of time? No, I just, no, I just, I just talk. it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. <laughs> matter. Because what you're doing is you're modeling, you're modeling big picture behavior for them. And they will eventually say, no, 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 no. You know what it's like? It's like a kid's camp. You know, they're the counselors and the kids and they're trapped there for a month, but they know their parents are, I don't know. You know, and it's, and, and the, the, the thing that's great is that they're always better, of course, than we could come up with. That's why we go to them as experts. But if you don't, if you don't model something for them, then I think they just they just want to sound like the rest of NPR, you know. And either I'm just very lucky, or this technique is working. And we all know what Robert really thinks. Ira talked about this in Radio and Illustrated Guide, the book we made about how This American Life puts their show together that inspired Out on the Wire. He said there that he sometimes tells a personal story to get interviewees to open up. If you're interviewing over the phone and they sound like they're reading a press release, David Customel recommends asking, are you reading from a press release? He says from experience that that one is guaranteed to get you some interesting tape. And don't be afraid to play dumb. The television presenter Louis Theroux, not to mention Ali G, has made a career of pretending to know less than he lets on in order to ask tough, probing questions. We could spend a lot of time here talking about the specifics of interviewing for audio, how to hold the mic, where to sit while talking with your interviewee, that kind of thing. But it's pretty technical. So we've put together a podcast bonus on my site at the show page. If you're interested in making broadcast quality tape, you can find that extra along with other links at jessicaable.com slash podcast in the episode five show notes. The best interviews feel like the best conversations, but they're not the same thing. You need to think through your story structure to figure out what you're going to have to get from the person before you show up. You've got to be ready to be a little bossy, setting up properly to capture the best sound. You'll be curious and emotional to inspire the same emotions in your interviewee. But once you've done all those things, you're in a position to manufacture your own luck, to harness luck as your industrial product. And getting lucky is a high. You know you're making your work better than it ever could have been without it. I just have this memory like when you were talking about 
something about designing the tape. I remember like being in Detroit and I was like with Jackie Lydon. I was producing her and we we had pretty much designed the story. But then like we're and we go to this bar on the outskirts of town to because we were looking at how abandoned Detroit was. And then we're just talking to people in the bar and this woman tells the story about how like her neighbor had hanged herself and nobody found this person it like you just like did, <laughs> I mean what <laughs> like stories about abandoned homes in Detroit like you know what I mean and it was actually really funny because I was the only one with the mic and but and I was getting the story from one person in the bar and Jackie was getting and Jackie was like what the fuck are you you know <laughs> and I was like but like we were both getting the exact same story from two different people um and like you know and so then we like, you know we find each other we get the story we're like you know get out here shut the door turn the music off like whatever get the story and like you know that's like that's how I was taught to work by the way do you think you were lucky yeah you were good (laughs) seriously you were good it's not luck I don't think it's luck yeah you're putting yourself in the situation where people are telling your stories you're asking the right questions you're in the right place When I read Larissa McFarker's new book, Strangers Drowning, Grappling with Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Overpowering Urge to Help, I knew that she would be the perfect person to talk to about interviewing. You might know her work from The New Yorker, where she's a staff writer, responsible for extraordinary pieces such as her 2013 profile of the then-recently-deceased Aaron Swartz, which set off a whole discussion on the ethics of the prosecution of digital crimes. Her new book is about altruism, do-gooders, and extreme cases of people living their life almost entirely for the benefit of others. She spent years researching and interviewing her subjects and the many ways we non-extraordinary givers justify our suspicion of people who devote their lives to altruism. I asked her about her methods. Effective altruists, one of the things they believe is that it's necessary to be very rational in your giving. You should, if you really want to help other people, you shouldn't do what most moves your emotions spontaneously. You should do what you think to be the most effective way of helping other people. Typically, low-cost medical interventions in the third world, like bed nets or like uh, deworming medicine that are very cheap but have a large effect. I originally thought I want to know more about people who live extremely moral lives. I want to know what, how their principles feel to them. Are their principles a joy to them, giving them purpose in life, or are they a burden? Do they feel crushed by them? There is this sense that there must be wrong, something wrong with such a person who would want to do such a selfless thing. And that's when I became really fascinated by this hostility and skepticism. And I thought this this needs further investigation. This project grew somewhat organically out of this original idea. But how do you normally go about finding and building your story ideas? This is very difficult. I find this the single hardest part of my job, which is kind of pathetic because I usually write profiles. And so all I have to come up with is a name. You would think that couldn't be too difficult, but you just need to find someone whose work and life you can make exciting. And it's harder than you would think to find just the right person. So what happens is I will come up with a list of ideas, my editor will come up with a list of ideas, and we'll go back and forth and eliminate 
the ones we don't like as much and settle on one we can agree on. Um, so for uh, for the material that went into your new book, um, how much research did you do before you actually got in touch with people to start interviewing? Well, usually I do an enormous amount of research. If I'm writing about somebody who is a well-established figure in a field, I will often spend a whole month reading uh, reading what they've written if, if they are some kind of a writer. In this book, I was writing about people who did not fit into those categories. They um, had not written themselves for the most part, and they were people whose lives were so unique that it was difficult to figure out what I would read in preparation. So often I didn't prepare at all, though I always tried. I mean, once I was going to interview um, a young woman named Julia Wise, who did end up in my book, she believes in giving away as much of her money as she possibly can. And I thought I should meet her. And this woman at the time, I think she was 24 or 25 years old. And I thought, my gosh, what can I possibly read to prepare? There's probably nothing because she's so young. But I decided just, what the hey, I'll just type her name into Google and see if anything comes up. And what I hadn't realized is that because she was 24 or 25, she had written a blog since she was 16. And it was a wonderful blog. It was, it was almost like a diary, but it wasn't very personal. It wasn't talking about her boyfriends or her moods with her parents or anything like that. They were more kind of 19th century style miniature essays about things that occurred to her. It was exactly what I wanted. And so I read her blog from her, from the age of 16 till the present, which was then, as I said, when she was 24 or 25. And so in fact, by the time I came to meet her, I knew more about her than I'd known about almost anyone I'd ever interviewed. And that was wonderful. I had a really good sense of how her mind worked, what she loved, what she hated, what disturbed her, what made her joyful, all kinds of things. The great thing about interviewing Julia and her husband, Jeff Kaufman, whom I wrote about in the book, is that these crucial choices were being, they were making those choices as I was talking to them. I talked to them over a period of four years. And in that time, they set up the parameters of their moral lives, which would guide them thenceforth. So Julia uh, was trying to decide whether or not to become a social worker. She wanted to become a social worker. She'd wanted to for years, but she was conflicted about it because you make very little money as a social worker. And she felt that even though she would be doing some good as a social worker in her work, she felt that the most important thing she could do for other people was to give money away. Um, and another huge decision that they had to make while I was talking to them was whether or not to have a child. And again, Julia had always wanted to have a child. She'd always dreamed about the children she would have, the games she would play with them, the meals she would cook them, the toys she would make for them. And then she realized that even though she would be a very frugal mother sending her children to public school, clothing them in secondhand clothes, even so, having a child would be very expensive and would take an, away a huge amount of money from what she could otherwise donate. And she came to realize, and this is going to sound, this sounds crazy to people, but she's not wrong. She realized that by having a child of her own, she would be in effect killing other people's children because she would be keeping for her own child money that she would otherwise donate for medical interventions elsewhere. 
And this was an incredibly difficult question for her to wrestle with. She wrestled with it for years. Ultimately, they decided that not having a child was the point at which they would be so unhappy with their lives that it would potentially destroy their whole moral motivation. And so they decided it was necessary to have a child to keep them committed. When you're when you're in your interviewing, so you read her blog, you get in touch with her, you know, can we talk? Are you willing to do this? What do you have to ask for from her in order to get to to know you're going to get what you need? And then how does the actual how do you actually manage all that interviewing? I usually say initially what I the minimum I need to make this work. And this goes for a profile in the New Yorker or a chapter in my book is two separate interviews of at least two hours each. And I say two separate interviews because I need time in the middle to remember all the things I forgot the first time, to ideally listen to the tape of the first interview and realize all the times I interrupted because I wasn't paying attention or I didn't follow up on something that he or she said that was incredibly interesting. I need to be able to correct my mistakes. So I need at least two two two-hour interviews. Um, in the case of it, it's, but it usually I end up talking to people more than that. And in the case of Julia and Jeff, what happened is I probably interviewed them a total of four or possibly probably four times. I noticed that there's not very much dialogue in the book that your, your writing is beautiful. And I feel very much like I got to know these people and, but, um, you don't quote them very much. Is that something that you that you find you think is typical of your work, or is that something that you chose for this particular subject? It's something I do sometimes because even though quotations would seem to be the most direct way of gaining access to a person's mind, because after all, that's how their thoughts came out of their mouth. Actually, I feel that quotations can sometimes be distancing because it they reinforce your sense, albeit I think unconsciously most of the time, that you're outside that person. You're you're listening to them. You're observing them speaking. You are separate from them. Whereas if you translate those thoughts into paraphrase and describe the way someone is thinking rather than quoting them, telling you what they're thinking it's much more intimate. You feel much more as though you're inside the person's head going through the thoughts with them than if you're listening to them talk. Um, you can you can decide whether or not you believe that they see the world or themselves accurately, but you are also feeling what it's like to be them. And that's what I wanted. There's so many different reasons for using quotes or not using quotes. I mean, one piece I wrote a couple of years ago that was almost all quotes was a piece about Aaron Swartz, who was a an internet entrepreneur and activist who killed himself in January 2013. And in that case, I thought, but with Aaron, who just killed himself, the important thing about him right now is that he's absent. He is not present. He's gone. And this was an enormous fact in the minds of everybody I spoke to, his friends and his family. And not just he was not just absent, many of them felt that he had abandoned them. And so I thought, how do I convey this 
this sense of absence and devastation to the reader. And I thought, well, one way I can myself abandon them. I can abandon them as the author. I'm not going to be holding their hands. I'm not going to be taking them through the story in the way that a writer usually does. I want them to feel that they've been deserted in the midst of this distressing story. And by using only quotes from other people, I, I hoped to convey a sense of Aaron's absence. How do you know when you're finished doing your interviewing and research? It's funny. Often the first interview is so revelatory and extraordinary. And others can be almost that much. But, but often you get so much in the first interview that the subsequent interviews are largely a matter of fleshing out stories and thoughts that the person has alluded to the first time you spoke with them. And so often you realize that you're done when all of those ends have been tied up, when all of the stories you started to talk about have been told in their entirety, um, and when you've clarified what the person meant by various things they said. For me, what I'm trying to ask is two things. One is, why are they so good at what they do? What is it about them? And the other is, why did they fall in love with this particular set of ideas or way of living a life? And once I get the answers to those two questions in a way that makes sense to me and feels true to that person, then I can say, all right, I by no means have sounded the bottom of this person, but I have a story I can tell. Thank you so much, Larissa McFarker, for talking to us today. That was so amazing. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me on. Find out more about Larissa and her work and links to get your copy of Strangers Drowning in the show notes. Now for this week's challenge. This week, I want you to do an interview, even if you're writing fiction. Remember my interviews with derby players? But before you do the interview, I want you to conduct a pre-interview or do research and map out major plot points and turning points. Create a list of questions. Think through feeling questions. Make your map. If you're working on an idea story where there's not necessarily a chronology to hang things on, first of all, look for one. But if that's not working, figure out what questions are likely to produce major idea groups or plot points or facts. Search for anecdotal hooks you can use to help the audience get through and understand the stakes. Once you've got all these questions written, you may feel tempted to send them to the interviewee beforehand. Don't do it. You want your interview to feel like a super interesting conversation with a friend. The kind of conversation where both of you leave excited, buzzing with the new ideas it sparked. If you're going to a coffee shop to meet a friend, do you send your topics of conversation ahead of time? Don't forget to wear headphones, set up properly, and check that your recorder is charged before you start. Make a quick test to make sure it's working. And it may seem silly given that you're sitting there with your mic out and your headphones on in front of somebody who's agreed to an interview, but ask permission to tape on tape before you begin. When you're done with your interview, take notes immediately on what struck you, what seemed like the best quotes. Jenna Weiss-Berman had a cool idea for how to do this quickly and naturally. I have these voice files. Like, after I do an interview, I 
feel like it's fresh, like, I get a lot of ideas, so I'll just hit record on my, like, little voice, like, recorder on this and be like, um, okay, so she wasn't a fighter in high school, um, she wrote an entire musical once about the history of Portuguese, uh, takeover of Brazil, uh, the downside of entertainment, which is the way that she has to look, um, yeah. Then, listen back and make a log of the tape, where you write down a few key words and phrases from each sentence, so that you have a physical document you can look at and edit. As you go through, listen again for great moments. Full transcription isn't necessary except for bits you plan to actually use, so don't waste time noting down every um and ah. The idea is to take notes on the tape without ever stopping the recording. Ben discovered a couple of sites that do a pretty decent machine transcription, which then you can use as a base for your log. You input your tape, and as you listen back, you can take that machine transcription and edit it where it came out garbled instead of starting from scratch. We'll put links in the show notes. I'll have show notes on this episode, including links to resources and links to all the stories we talked about on my site at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can also get show notes emailed to you if you're on the newsletter. Out on the Wire is based on my new graphic nonfiction book about how the best producers on the radio and in podcasts make their incredible stories. Get your copy of Out on the Wire, the storytelling secrets of the new masters of radio. Go to jessicaable.com slash out on the wire. If you love Out on the Wire and want to support the show, check out the Out on the Wire bonus pack. In it, you get full music downloads from the show and complete versions of our new interviews, including Stephanie Fu, Jonathan Mitchell, Kazu Kibuishi, Robert Smith, and more. It's a great way to spend some time with our awesome guests and support the show at the same time. It's only $10, or more if you're feeling generous, for over eight hours of bonus content. Find out more at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can find me on Twitter at jccable. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Pinterest. And those links are on our webpage. Out of the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch, with music contributed by Matt Madden. Made with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. And special thanks to... Brom Revel, Our cartoonist colleague and voice actor this week. See you in a week with Benjamin Frisch and Matt Madden for a discussion of some of your work from the Out on the Wire working group in our workshop episode. And then in a few weeks with episode six, Proof of Concept. <laughs>